The impact of artificial intelligence on society is truly one of the most profound and important topics of our time, and its importance is going to grow. Today, on episode number 301 of CXO Talk, we're speaking with Lord Tim Clement Jones, who chairs a committee of the House of Lords of the UK Parliament and has just released an important uh, research document and policy statement, policy advisory statement, on this topic. I'm Michael Krigsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. Before we go further, I want you to please, please, please subscribe on YouTube and tell all of your friends. In addition to Lord Tim, I'm so I'm really delighted that we're also joined by an old CXO Talk hand, David Bray, who is my guest co-host and he's a subject matter expert on this topic. David is the executive director of People-Centered Internet. He is associated with Harvard University. He is a Marshall Scholar in Europe and is coming to us right now from Brazil, where he's been speaking today on this exact topic for Singularity University. So David's a guy who wears a, a lot of hats. And David Bray, uh, welcome back to CXO Talk. Thanks for having me, Michael, and thanks for that very humbling introduction. Uh, glad to be on the show as a guest uh, and actually as a subject matter expert to join Lord Tim. Well, I am. It's always it's always a delight to see you. And and David, uh, so you're in Brazil and you're you're giving a talk on on these issues today. Yes, it was actually yesterday with Singular University on everything ranging from the opportunities and challenges of the Internet of Things, uh, the opportunities and challenges with AI and how we need to think about being more resilient uh, as a society to what these impacts will have both on organizations and on societies and on nations as a whole. Lord Tim Clement Jones, uh, it's an honor to welcome you to CXO Talk and uh, thank you for being here today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Michael. I'm delighted to be here and especially to be talking it, with, uh, talking it through with you and David. So, Tim, please tell us about uh, the committee that you chair. Well, <clears throat> we uh, set up the committee last year, uh, in June last year, and we had about nine months to produce a report. Our brief was to look at the economic, ethical and social implications of advances in artificial intelligence uh, in the UK and the implications. And so we fulfilled our brief. It was a pretty breakneck uh, operation. Uh, nine months, we produced a report uh, in April. Uh, we've now had the government response in June. Um, but I think most people think that it's a fairly fundamental piece of work. Uh, you know, it's a couple of hundred pages, 74 recommendations. And we took something of the order of 230 uh, separate pieces of written evidence. So we have a pretty good evidence base for the whole report. And I have to say that uh, in addition from the report, the report is filled with links back to transcripts of the testimony. So it's a, a very rich repository and, and anybody who takes a look at it should be aware that it's not just the report, but it's the source material as well. Yes, absolutely. And of course, we also had 66 oral sessions uh, with witnesses as well, and people can see those uh, actually recorded as well. 
Why did you decide to invest the significant level of resources and time to create this research? Well, we're very lucky in the House of Lords because um, not only do we have, if you like, uh, the permanent select committees, rather like congressional uh, committees, but we also have what we call uh, ad hoc committees, special committees set up uh, for particular topics. And these are decided on by the senior uh, leaders in the House of Lords, uh, and they respond basically to suggestions being made by members. And, you know, one of the really uh, uh, important issues uh, it was thought by a number of members of the Lords who suggested that we should have this inquiry uh, was artificial intelligence. So that somewhat belies the kind of slightly fuddy-duddy reputation that the House of Lords might have. So, so Tim, um, recognizing that you know most of our viewers may not have read the report yet, uh, however, hopefully we're going to get them hooked and interested in reading it, what would you say are sort of the key sort of takeaways um, for the public as well as for business leaders to think about in terms of what this report find? Well, what I think we tried to do was to get to grips with the real problem of polarization of opinion, if you like, on this whole area. As you know, uh, uh, both of you will be familiar with Elon Musk calling artificial intelligence more dangerous than nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, the late Stephen Hawking had a pretty similar view. On the other hand, there are others who are grossly optimistic and don't believe that there are any ethical or other societal issues uh, which AI gives rise to. So what we tried to do is to cut through that and uh, come up with uh, where we thought the opportunities were, but also be very, very forensic about exactly what we thought the risks were that needed mitigating. So, you know, I can go give examples, but for instance, bias and algorithms, um, issues of lack of transparency, issues of misuse of data, um, on the risk side, some t and non-inclusion and so on. Uh, but also, uh, we didn't want to lose sight of the opportunities, which are manifold. And uh, it was important, we thought, to get the balance right. And that's why, in a sense, you'll see that it is a very balanced report because we genuinely were optimistic about the future, but we were saying to government, you've got to sort out some of these issues at the same time. And so to build on that, Tim, um, so since the report has come out, have you seen or do you hope to see things with the UK government that they're going to start doing? And then beyond the UK government, do you think there's responsibility for other sectors to play a role as well? Yes, I absolutely do. And it's very interesting. The government produced their response in March, in uh, June uh, this year. And the absolute first principle, in a sense, that they had they, they agreed with us on is the whole issue of the need to retain and build public trust. One of our real uh, concerns was that if the public didn't understand what AI was all about, how it would benefit them, or what impact it would have on them and their jobs and so on, they would abreact against that. There would be a kind of Luddite uh, uh, opinion uh, forming process. And the government absolutely accept the need to build public trust. And so that leads on to the need to have an ethical framework, the need to make sure we don't have bias uh, 
uh, and the need to make sure that uh, people trust the way that their data is used. So uh, that is the first principle, basically, that we felt the government really um, have accepted. And, uh, you know, that's a very good basis for going forward. Obviously, there are many other areas uh, involved uh, where uh, we don't feel that the government have been quite active enough uh, in terms of skills uh, and understanding the kinds of skills that are going to be needed in the future. Uh, but they set the uh, very important need to have reskilling and adaptability for our workforce, meeting uh, uh, the needs of the future uh, in terms of working with AI and indeed sometimes having to find new forms of employment where they've been displaced by AI. So I generally feel that actually we are uh, we're in a good place. We've had quite a lot of contact with government after the report. I personally have had uh, you know conversations with the new chairman of the Center for Data Ethics and Innovation, which have a lot to do with uh, uh, the formation of the new ethics codes and so on. Um, and so we think that's a very fruitful relationship that we can we can build on. And the government also accept our international agenda. They're having discussions with uh, the government of Canada, France, and more broadly. And again, uh, I think they've accepted that they do have a leadership role to play internationally uh, and that it is essential to build uh, a common agreement across governments uh, uh, internationally to make sure that, uh, uh, bluntly, artificial intelligence is our servant, not our master. Tim, was your primary goal to establish that baseline or were there other sort of basic goals that you had in developing the report? I think we had the basic goal that we didn't want to kind of uh, 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 throw out the baby with the bathwater. We were very, very conscious of the very unfortunate experience that we've had in the UK and in Europe on GM foods, where you know we could have been far, far more uh, positive about the use of GM, uh, but we failed to build public trust. And as a result, the public didn't understand that GM foods could benefit them. Uh, uh, and effectively, what happened in Europe is that the European Union banned uh, uh, GM foods altogether. Now, that's not the case in the States. There was a degree of public trust um, and uh, uh, GM foods were uh, allowed to carry on. Now, I'm not saying that we would adopt exactly the same regime, but it is, if you like, uh, an object lesson uh, uh, for governments in terms of how not to build public trust. And we've got some other more positive examples, such as the technology on human fertilization and embryology, where in the UK we accepted that wholeheartedly because of the way it was communicated and regulated and so on. And so we were really uh, uh, interested in some of that history, uh, and we wanted to make sure that we learned the lessons from the past in terms of how the public would uh, uh, adapt to AI and understand the benefits of AI. Um, and of course, those opportunities uh, are the things that are going to help uh, with our economy, help with our society, uh, particularly in areas like healthcare and education, personalizing education, for instance. So um, there are a great many benefits. And But we said at the same time, you've got to deal with these other risks. Uh, uh, and we, 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 I've talked about them a little bit today. Uh, and, you know, I can go into them in more detail. Uh, actually, I was wondering, Tim, if you might be able to explain for our viewers a little bit about sort of how the House of Lords works in the entire context of Parliament. And it sounds like 
you know, in some respects, you're able to go forth and try to approach things from a non-political perspective and research them. And we don't necessarily have the same thing in the U.S., but maybe if you could tell us a little bit more about what you do and the value of that function in trying, like you said, to help build public trust. Yes, we don't start off, you know, like a kind of uh, congressional inquiry or indeed a a select committee inquiry in the Commons, which is really trying to find the culprits. Um, You know, we're basically starting off with a very uh, balanced way of inquiring into a particular subject. So it doesn't or doesn't tend to be particularly political. It, it is actually looking at how policy should be formed, uh, whether the government's got the right policy going forward, and it isn't trying to sort of you know adopt an absolutely critical stand right from the uh, word off, which some committees in the Commons try and do, and they grandstand with witnesses and so on and so forth. That isn't the way a House of Lords committee operates uh, at all. It basically, it's uh, uh, treating a subject seriously, treating the witnesses very seriously indeed, and uh, uh, listening to them very carefully and trying to get as much expert testimony uh, that we can, and then coming to a conclusion. And as you say, it is really a very non-partisan in the sense um, I chaired the committee. You know, it was very, very difficult um, to establish um, for an outsider, I'm sure, who uh, uh, was in which party or another, quite frankly, because um, they're all independent-minded, um, and we all uh, uh, listen to the evidence with, a, with our critical faculties, you know, on full alert. But we did agree 100% as to the outcome of the of the report. Did you, uh, as you, as you were doing the research? What did you learn that was perhaps surprising to you, or how did your your views evolve as you went through this? That's a very good question, Michael. I think it was it was very interesting. Apart from the polarization point, which I must say did surprise me when I first uh, looked at the evidence, if you like, the press comment that was out there was highly polarized. But I think the most important thing that we all came to realize is that AI is already here. It's already embedded in our smartphones. It's already in uh, uh, Google Home, Echo Dot, and so on and so forth. So actually, we're grappling with issues that are the here and now. um, And therefore, for people to talk about the singularity or uh, strong AI is not particularly relevant. What we really need to talk about is the implications are the implications of narrow AI, uh, AI as it is now, because that already has given rise to ethical issues, issues to do with bias of data sets and uh, algorithms and so on. So uh, we are, you know, and, and in a sense, we're in a little bit of a race against time to make sure we can establish that framework. So I think that was probably the biggest lesson. And therefore, we all had a great sense of urgency um, about the need to really get on and uh, get our proposals out there. So, Tim, um, so shifting from sort of the, the takeaways from the reports to implementation, where do you see sort of the safe spaces or are there safe spaces in the UK where, like you said, people can move forward, they can learn? Because I, I assume that while there's recommendations, the implementation level doesn't really necessarily have a textbook on how to do this right. Mm. Given all the other frictions that are going on, I mean, the friction in Europe, the friction in the UK itself, the friction in the US, 
where are the safe spaces to do this without it be either becoming either a media field day or a political field day to try and get ahead of this curve, as you said? I think uh, we're quite lucky in the fact that um, uh, up to now we had a, uh, a very active, proactive Secretary of State um, for digital uh, uh, culture, media and sport, the government department charged really with the development of our digital economy. Um, and I think he, he, to his credit, was very proactive in terms of starting to establish the framework for uh, the way that ethics were going to be developed, the way that uh, industry, business was going to be involved in the evolution of uh, of artificial intelligence um, and the way that government was going to connect all the dots and coordinate it. So um, uh, uh, that went into the industrial strategy. Uh, industri uh, artificial intelligence is one of the grand challenges that's been set out by government and so on. So in a sense, we had some of those ingredients uh, coming along uh, on stream uh, from the government at the time we started our work and continued our work. So in a way, we've gone with the flow, but we've you know tightened the bolts and we've uh, made new suggestions in certain areas for greater priority, moving things up the political agenda. Um, uh, so I, I think we are quite fortunate that the government recognized that it's not only the economic opportunities, which are very great for us as a, as a country, um, but also uh, that we've got to get it right in terms of public trust and ethics. So I think we're, we're, we've been in a good place. Uh, we, you can never move fast enough. And of course, we've got the distraction of Brexit uh, at the same time. But I am been quite impressed by uh, the fact that uh, despite some of the uh, external distractions, we've managed to keep moving forward. And I hope that our new minister, the new Secretary of State, uh, uh, who's taken over from Matt Hancock, will do likewise. Uh, and Matt Hancock is now Secretary of State for Health, and I think he will have a very big influence on our National Health Service in its adoption of artificial intelligence and actually making much better use of the data that it has uh, 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 for the benefit of patients. I want to uh, remind everybody that we're speaking right now with Lord Tim Clement-Jones from who chairs the AI committee that just released an amazing, a really great report from the House of Lords in the UK. And we are also joined by my guest co-host and subject matter expert on this topic, David Bray. And right now there's a tweet chat taking place and you can ask questions using the hashtag CXOTalk. Tim, uh, following up on David's questions about the implementation, how has the government and other stakeholders reacted or responded to the report? Well, they've responded very positively. And uh, uh, I mentioned the point about public trust earlier. They accepted that. Uh, they've accepted even some you know, quite difficult issues that we've raised with them, such as the issues relating to uh, ownership of data sets, uh, uh, and the fact that uh, there is some uh, uh, evidence that small and medium-sized companies, startups, uh, are not getting access to those data sets. And so there is uh, uh, the possibility, the probability uh, of uh, data monopolies being, being uh, established, which need tackling through competition law and so on. So, you know, ranging from uh, uh, the way that the new data uh, uh, Center for Data Ethics and Innovation is going to operate uh, and uh, uh, how um, uh, the National uh, 
uh, uh, retraining um, uh, service will operate. So I think that you know we've, we 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 are in a quite a good place. The government have been uh, very positive. Um, of course, we want them to move faster, and we do want to make sure that. Uh, we have the ability to make sure they deliver. Of course, my select committee is a short-term select committee. It's now done its job, um, and it's up to others, uh, and I will do that in Parliament in other ways. It's up to others to make sure that uh, the government does deliver uh, what it says uh, it's going to deliver, and it said it was going to deliver quite a lot in its response to our report. So, so sort of to extend that, say it's three years from now, and your report's recommendations have been adopted. What do you see that's different about the UK or about the world as a whole if the report's recommendations have been adopted? Well, I, what, the first thing I want to see is much greater coordination of the government policies uh, in this area. They, they've set up a new AI council, which includes industry. They've got a new office uh, for AI uh, within the uh, government. Um, and they've got the new Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation. And there are many, many other bodies there, the Alan Turing Institute and so on. And they've got to make basically make sure that our AI strategy is carried forward in a very coordinated way. And so that's, in a sense, the domestic agenda. They have to join the dots in uh, domestic terms. But internationally, I would be extremely disappointed if I didn't see movement internationally uh, 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 to have a, a code of ethics uh, being developed, you know, in collaboration with France and Canada, uh, uh, South Korea, and many other countries, including Gulf states uh, in this whole area of, of, of countries who have a real interest um, in artificial intelligence uh, uh, and the ethical development of artificial intelligence. I would very much hope the US would also uh, contribute to that. But at the moment, I'm not convinced that there is, if you like, a strategy uh, for that uh, within the US administration. So, so, Tim, so sort of extending from that, you talk about the ethics. Can you talk a little bit about more about like what kind of ethics are we looking for? Or are there principles? Because obviously, you know, we've had 3,000 years or more of philosophy and philosophers are still haven't really converged on a single code. So so could you tell us a little bit about if it was a perfect world and, and you got to sort of help guide the way, what would that ethical framework look like uh, at the world stage uh, for, for AI? Absolutely. Well, we set out five principles. It could be six, seven. Uh, we chose rather arbitrarily to have five. And we basically said, first of all, and they're high level principles. You know, I mean, it's rather like uh, when you look at the UN Declaration of Human Rights or things of that sort, they are to be implemented at national level. But you have a high level set of principles uh, which are applied uh, uh, locally, if you like. And it's that AI should be used for the public good is that AI um, should be transparent uh, uh, and free of bias. Uh, uh, AI should not be used uh, 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 for uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, and so on. So there is a, there is a hierarchy of different uh, uh, and that people's data uh, uh, make sure that they have uh, the benefit of privacy and so on. So there, is, there's, there, there are a series of, of uh, uh, principles uh, uh, which relate to the application of AI. Excellent. And that actually ties into why I was in Europe as a Marshall Fellow is uh, it's actually 70 years since the Marshall, uh, the Marshall program was put in place after World War II. Actually, in December of this year, actually will be 70 years since the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And so it may be that we're now at this crossroads in which 
the, the world has been pretty much operating on institutions that are post-World War II, and now we need to think about how do we refresh them for the 21st century ahead. Absolutely. Uh, One of the big issues is what is the best uh, uh, framework, in a sense, I mean, the best institution to try and develop this ethical framework? Is it the G20? Is it the UN? You know, is it you start at a, at a different level. You start with the European Union, who also are extremely interested in this whole area. You know, what is the best way of actually developing such a framework? So what is the best way? David and I were part of a large organization, a nonprofit organization, a well-known one that was, tr that was trying to promulgate these kinds of standards. And one of the problems that I see with this is the the co-option of various organizations on issues, co-opting of issues such as AI ethics to serve what amounts to, uh, to either commercial aims in, 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 on the part of technology companies, or in the case of nonprofits, basically popularity. And it's, it creates tremendous distortion. So how do you manage that? Well, uh, I think what you can't do is simply try and uh, just let the private sector get on with it, so to speak, and assume that they're going to develop their own code of ethics. I mean, the partnership in AI is a very valuable initiative. It's got a lot of very good companies on it, um, and many of whom I know are working very hard in uh, these sort of areas. I think it has to be a collaboration at the end of the day. But at the end of the day, also, governments are the ones who have to control the agenda. Uh, in terms of the development of AI, uh, because as I said, you know, you have to make a decision uh, that AI is going to be the, your servant, not your master. And if you take that view, for instance, on things like autonomous vehicles or whatever it may be, you have to make sure that at the right time, if necessary, you regulate. I'm not a big fan of regulation at this stage because it is not yet obvious what would need to be regulated. I think it's very important to let innovation take place and so on. But when you need to translate those ethical principles into regulation, of course, that's the point where uh, governments come into play. So, Tim, I'm wondering if I could ask sort of two questions, one at the global level and one at the more community local level. At the global level, you talked about possibly what are the right configuration of nations to come together. What are your thoughts about maybe it's actually networks of people that span nations or, or, or actually groups that span nations? And maybe, maybe, maybe regulation by geography is increasingly going to be difficult to do, and it's more coalitions of the willing across the world. So that's the global level question. And then the more community level question is, uh, imagine some of the more rural parts of the UK. What would they see three years from now that would be sort of the impact of this report on the more rural parts of, of the country? Yes, I'll I'll come on to that second question, but um, I can I, I think that it, it, it isn't incompatible. The first point you make about networks that are non-governmental, in a sense, that's not incompatible with government action. I think the more you can build public opinion, and there is pressure on the political system to develop ethical principles and have a framework, uh, and that is an international. You can you know if there's an international movement, and of course the internet gives us that possibility. I think that's wholly positive. Um, uh, uh, and I think that means, uh, as long as it's you know, okay, the right set of ethical principles, means that you're allowing the development of, of AI in the right kind of way. What would be wrong is if you had, uh, you know, movements that were designed to stop AI at any cost. 
you know, I'm a great believer in, in having these principles. So it means we can develop AI in the right way. If you are uh, coming on to your second point, if you were um, in, uh, if you like, a rural area in the UK uh, in the future, uh, it's very difficult to see quite how uh, things would work, um, except that, of course, you would see you'd have much better connectivity. I hope that by the time, you know, in three or four years time, we'll have 5G uh, we'll have much faster uh, uh, fiber uh, uh, connections and so on. So people will benefit from uh, better connectivity. But how AI is going to affect them will probably depend on the sector in which they're in. If they're professionals, they may find that, you know, they're doing more, uh, they have greater ability um, uh, to have assistive AI, which helps them work from home. Uh, it may be that the farmers have better uh, 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 information about the crops they're growing, about uh, the weather conditions and so on. And therefore, there is a greater specialization and ability to make uh, rural areas prosperous. Uh, you know, it's very difficult, I mean, with all matters AI, to forecast the future, particularly in employment terms, as we've seen from quite a number of the, of the sort of reports, people like uh, Frey and Osborne and others uh, uh, find it very, very difficult to predict exactly uh, what the job situation is going to be in just a few years' time. We have a question from Twitter, and uh, uh, actually the the at CXO Talk account is asking a really interesting question. If you wait to see what goes wrong with AI, it's too late. And so how do you protect the public proactively from the negative effects of AI? Well, there's a very fine principle. And, uh, you know, as a lawyer, um, uh, I uh, really uh, appreciate it, called the precautionary principle. I think if there is some evidence that there is uh, detriment, then you can act on it. But uh, you don't have to wait until, you know, disaster strikes. Uh, you have to uh, be proactive in making sure that you have an idea of what's happening out there and your radar is fully alert. Um, so I don't think it's an either or situation. I think the precautionary principle applies, for instance, on a lot of matters involving the environment. And I would say that it applies also uh, in matters involving artificial intelligence as well. Can I ask, uh, what advice do you have for people in the technology community, for individuals and, and, and the technology companies? There's a lot of technology folks who listen to this show, and so this speaks directly to them. Yes, I, 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 I'm basically very happy with the response of many uh, technology companies to our report. They, uh, and I think it's genuine. I don't think uh, it's a cynical uh, exercise. They genuinely accept the need for an ethical framework. What there is a little bit of equivocation about is the question of whether or not they should design AI and algorithms and so on in a way that's explainable and transparent. Uh, there's some doubt whether that's possible. But the more people I talk to in the technology industry, the more this is a matter of design up front. So it, basically, it may not be the case now that AI is explainable, but I am reliably informed by many, many people in the tech industries that uh, it is possible to make sure when you design AI algorithms and so on, that you build in explainability. And I think that's very important. And I'd like uh, to really get that point across to the tech industry. 
And, and and to build on what Tim said, Michael, I mean, we're seeing in the United States, our Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency actually have a thing called explainable AI, where they're actually trying to right now encourage industry to come forward with solutions. I also think, you know, we shouldn't discount the ability of people to help sort of serve as minders to make sure things don't go wrong. Uh, you could imagine a future in which companies or any organization has a group of people both from the inside as well as the outside that look at the data being fed to talk to teach the machine because it could be the algorithm itself is very simplistic and can be made transparent but it's the data sets that if the data is biased itself you'll get bias in the machine so they're looking at the data sets and they're also looking at what conclusions the machine makes and so I think, you know it's going to be a tech solution plus a people-centered solution as well for the future ahead it's a hugely important issue that, and one of the points we make in the report is there needs to be much better digital understanding uh, by the public. I mean, contributing in that way seems to me to be extremely important for the future. You know, the citizen needs to understand what AI is doing, what the implications are, how it might be biased if it's using the wrong data sets, how it should be explainable and so on. Um, and I think it needs to start very young. Young people already don't really know uh, what is happening uh, with the AI in their smartphones in terms of uh, targeting them you know, on social media, in terms of the purchases they make on the internet, and so on and so forth. So uh, I, I think uh, digital understanding, the need for it, really ties in with the point you make, David. And Michael, if I could add one thing to that real quick, I would also say it's, it's, I could easily imagine a new field which will be, I mean, there used to be a thing called, there still is human-computer interaction, but I could imagine there's going to be a whole sort of, sort of anthropology, sociology studies about how, as we begin to interact with something that is independently intelligent from ourselves, both the good and the bad and the in-between that arise from that. Um, you know, in terms of how human behavior occurs. Uh, and that, that's recognizing that we humans also have uh, general traits that have become part of being human as a result of evolution. Uh, there's, there's a wonderful sort of series of studies, psychology studies that show if you want something to go viral on the internet, you make it either angry or fearful. Well, hopefully the machine doesn't learn when it gets signed the goal of promote something on social media to do that. But I think that's where we're going to have to recognize that it's both trying to recognize and make sure the machine doesn't actually have bad behaviors at scale or even individually, but also recognizing that we as humans may have some challenges of just being human, some flaws and some just humanity about ourselves that when coupled with the machine may create some interesting patterns. Completely. That's precisely the point. What we don't want to do is incorporate the worst of our human features uh, into AI. And of course, that will be doubly the case if we start uh, uh, cracking uh, the, the way in which AI can understand our emotions, um, right. because that, I think, is one of the next big steps that's going to take place. And we have a very interesting question from Twitter on this topic from Arsalan Khan, who asks, to what extent should the government be involved regulating the ethics? And just as an extension of that, I would add regulating the uh, the data sets to ensure that they are as bias-free as possible? Well, I think there's no doubt about it. We've seen um, a big change in public opinion, big change in public policy over the years towards the internet. Now, we started off by thinking the internet was a absolutely free and open space that shouldn't be regulated and so on in any shape or form, that view has changed over a period of time. Uh, I think the same um, as it is happening with artificial intelligence uh, in that sense. 
Uh, I think we have to make sure that AI just isn't just simply free for all, developed in any old way. We already have pretty strong uh, uh, regulation through the uh, General Data Protection Regulation, which came in earlier this year in Europe, um, and which makes sure that the people, the use of people's data is properly regulated. It even has something to say, a little bit to say, <clears throat> about the way that algorithms uh, uh, use data and explainability and so on and so forth. But I think it's very important to have that kind of regulation in order to establish public trust. Because if you don't establish public trust, it means that the, uh, uh, the, the technology is suspect, uh, that the public won't accept it, and there will be an ab reaction if they see AI taking jobs, taking uh, functions away uh, from them. And so, you know, this is all about traveling together along the road, not somebody breaking off and saying, you know, I don't need any form of regulation. You know, we're, we're almost out of time. I wish we had a, a lot more time. So we'll, we'll need to do this again. Uh, so so in, in your mind, one of the, the key takeaways from the report is the importance of communication and transparency so that the, the public understands what's actually taking place. Absolutely. And it's such a big challenge because, you know, we've all seen the narrative. You know, we have our uh, tabloid newspapers in the UK uh, uh, with the Terminator robot narrative. You know, uh, uh, whenever there's AI mentioned in a tabloid, you normally get a picture of some robot or other from one of the, the movies, you know, which isn't necessarily a very nice robot. Um, you know, and so AI is, if we're not careful, being characterized as the enemy. And we've got to change that narrative. Uh, we've got to make sure that the way that we develop public policy counteracts that narrative. And I'm passionate about that. And I'm, I'm convinced we can do it, but we all have to work together in doing it. Let me ask you both a final question. Um, how, do we, how do we ensure that not just the narrative, but the substance of the way AI develops uh, leads to the the betterment of society rather than to the to increasing inequality in society and and in a sense that's sort of foundational to all of this. I think that's actually near and dear to the People Centered Internet Coalition, which is there is no textbook for the world we're going towards. However, Lord Tim and 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 the folks with the commission have put out some really great principles. And so what we like to do is put them into practice. And so we like to do demonstration projects that we can learn from, and even more importantly, sort of measure how this improves people li people's lives. And our goal is, if successful, either localities will copy them, states will copy them, companies will copy them, countries will copy them. And it's sort of creating a space in which we can learn uh, and, and as Tim said, if, if we sense that anything's not going right, we can make changes, we can shift, we can use the precautionary principle and try to address this unfinished work of actually translating the, the ideals into practice and help shape the future. Now, that said, we're obviously a small organization and there's many more organizations out there. And I think it's actually getting back to the idea that it's going to take both government and non-government organizations and private sector funding to sort of do these projects around the world and sort of self-learn from each other with the goal of if we, if we are mindful of trying to bring up everybody, that will be a triple win for society, that'll be a triple win for the economy, and it'll be a triple win for individuals. If, however, we get fragmented and people go their own ways, as Lord Tim mentioned, and, and people say, we don't need to work together, we don't need to learn together, 
in the short term, whoever goes off on their own might benefit, but it'll pull us apart. And it will actually, I worry because I actually wish I was like the UK right now, where it seems like you actually have more solidification around a vision and moving forward. I can't say the same is true about the US. Um, but if we can learn from each other and move forward together from these learning living communities, that might be how we can make sure that we actually make sure it benefits everybody and we don't fall into the trap of di digital inequality or lack of inclusion with AI. I think David's put it beautifully. I think we have to create a climate in which we accept the need for AI to be developed in that uh, ethical way. Um, I do think also, though, it needs leadership. Um, uh, of course, you know, we've, it, it, there's a sort of organic way of developing uh, uh, opinion uh, and acceptance of, uh, of a need for ethics and so on. But at the same time, we need to have leadership in government. We need to have leadership in industry to make sure that, you know, for instance, if uh, companies are deciding to invest in AI, they really look at the implications, the ethical implications, the job implications, the reskilling implications. So it, this becomes second nature. It becomes, you know, uh, a set of procedures that they know they've got to do in order to have public acceptance. And I think that, you know, that will require quite some leadership because a lot of our leaders will not really understand fully what the implications <clears throat> of AI are and what the benefits will be, um, as well as, of course, uh, the the risks that they need to mitigate. Okay, we are we are pretty much out of time and what a very, very fast conversation this has been on one of truly the most important issues uh, that we are facing as a, as a society, as a, as a world and, and the imp impact of technology. We've been speaking with Lord Tim Clement Jones, who is the chairman of the House of Lords Select Committee on Artificial Intelligence, and they have done really a, an incredibly excellent report on this subject of the impact of AI on society, and I urge you to search for it and read it. It's, it's very rich. And uh, our guest co-host and a subject matter expert on this topic has been David Bray, who's the Executive Director of People-Centered Internet. He has also been a Marshall, David is a Marshall Fellow or Marshall Scholar? Marshall Memorial Fellow. A Marshall Memorial Fellow in uh, Europe. Thank you so much everybody for watching. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube, tell your friends and go to cxotalk.com because we have great shows coming up. Thanks a lot everybody, bye-bye.